Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by TireRack.com and RockAuto.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Thank you, Alec Webb, and welcome everyone to our MotorWeek podcast number 260. I'm John Davis. Joining me today are two-wheeling reporter Brian Robinson. Oh, great to hear you, John. And online content coordinator Jessica Ray. Hey, everybody. And Jessica is also producing t- today. Uh, Greg uh, Carlos, our normal producer, is out on maternity leave. So maternity. congratulations, Greg. Hope you and your growing family are doing well. Hey, everybody out there, if you are looking at the video version of our podcast today, I do apologize. Uh, I'm a big blank screen. If I'm not even there, I guess. Um, video uh, today uh, just uh, didn't cooperate with our internet. Uh, but anyway, you can hear us, and that's what's important. We've got three great cars to talk about, a lightning round, a viewer question from Dion B. And at the end, we'll see if uh, either Brian or Jessica has a rant or a rave or both. Everybody ready? Mm-hmm. All right, Jessica, you lead us off. The 2021 Mercedes-Benz S-Class. They don't get much bigger these days. No, they do not. I mean, it was uh, it was certainly an experience driving the new S-Class. It, it is everything that a flagship should be. Um, and first on the exterior, I know that a lot of people were not a big fan of this, uh, this redesign because it wasn't, I mean, it's not exactly evolutionary, um, but on the outside, uh, all the lines are a bit smoother, sort of goes in line with a lot of the rest of the design language we've seen from Mercedes-Benz. Um, but I will say that it looks maybe just a slightly less regal than before, um, but it's more aerodynamic. Um, and the big evolution, of course, is the interior. It's the inside. That's where um, there's so, so much new technology in this new S-Class um, that, and Mercedes really focused on the inside experience. And um, one of the big things, of course, is, is there's these two large screens, one on the center stack and, and another one that is uh, for the digital instrument cluster. So when you get in the car, it's very intimidating, I, I will say. I, I, I felt like I, I didn't have a lot of instruction before I was off and, and running. Um, and I was in some confusing areas, so I did get a little bit lost, um, which, uh, which would have been helped if I had um, had my augmented reality head-up display uh, navigation cues that direct you arrows right on the road um, exactly where you need to go. Um, but I didn't cool. have that. I didn't have that, unfortunately. I didn't have that on at, at least. And, um, but once I sort of started to understand the design inside, Everything made so much sense. Um, you can control both the uh, the large uh, screen on the center stack and the digital instrument cluster with your thumbs. Uh, on when you're holding the steering wheel, um, you can control with a swipe of your thumb to um, change the radio, change any setting on it. Um, it's, it's really really intuitive. So I thought that was really interesting. Another really awesome um, thing, of course, is that the MBUX, which is the Mercedes-Benz user experience, um, that has been upgraded. It's the new generation. It's 50 times 
faster than the previous generation, something like that. And anybody within um, all four seating positions can call to it. So you just say, hey, Mercedes, like you're talking to your phone and it can respond to a ton of different questions, not just saying, hey, turn down the AC or something, but it can respond to like indirect questions too. Um, I tried to test it a little too much, um, um, but yeah, no, that, so that was really interesting. And of course, one of the um, other really interesting features, you know, it's a huge sedan, but it has optional rear axle steering, which was so weird to, to, to test out. It's really interesting to see if you watch somebody back up and, um, you know, all four uh, wheels are turning, but it just surprises you on a, a turn that you think you're going to take and you you have to go wide. It feels like it has a turning radius much closer to that of an E-class you, you're, mm. and you're in such a large vehicle. So that was, uh, that was really, really, really interesting to actually test out. Um, but um, yeah, just overall the, the ride quality was, incredible. I mean, it, it really was impressive. The aromatic air suspension is just really, really awesome. Um, and I can't, so you were in, you were in pothole city in a way. And so you, you felt it even held up well there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think in, uh, Brian here wrote our first look of it, uh, almost a year ago now, it seems. And, um, he mentioned that something about saying, oh, we'd rather spend 10 hours in the driver's seat of the, the interior of an S-Class than on any like first class um, flight. And I spent 10 hours in that S-Class, which is an absurd amount of time for a first drive. Um, but I have to agree with him because it's one of those cars that you get into and you're, you will never dread a drive. You could be tired and you could, it's so comfortable to drive. You feel nothing. Yeah, the S-Class has always been like that. And uh, I feel, I wish that was one vehicle everyone could experience. I mean, exotic cars are one, you know, they're they're cool, they're fun. But this car, just with the technology and the luxury and just the things that no other vehicle has and people think about just in this car, it's just such a unique experience. Uh, things like last gen, they brought out that air, I, I, I I don't even remember what it's called, atomizer, I guess, where they pump sense through the HVAC. And I'm like, wow, S-Class owners, they don't even want to smell bad things in their life. So, But it's such an amazing car to drive <laughs> as well. And people ask, like, what's the fastest you've ever been? They assume it's on a track in like a sports car, but it's actually in an S-Class, AMG S-Class in Germany on the unrestricted stretch of the Autobahn, just tacking that thing out. Uh, amazing vehicle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That, I think that's kind of the two of you really summed up what makes this car so special. It is absolutely one of the at, at the pinnacle of the mass market uh, luxury automobiles. And in many ways, I think I'd rather have this than some of the even pricier uh, exotic four doors out there. But on the other hand, as Brian noted, it still drives like a true German, maybe not sports sedan, but certainly more than your average luxury car. It's extraordinarily solid. Uh, it's extraordinarily fast. And at the same time, you're pretty much isolated from 
anything you don't want, like bad, un, unwelcome sounds or pothole joust or anything like that. So pretty amazing car. And I can see looking at the picture of a 21 versus uh, a 20, uh, the I see where you're coming from, Jessica, saying it's a little less regal. It actually looks a lot more sporty than uh, the previous uh, generation did, I think. So. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Definitely looks sportier. But I think that goes in hand with the aerodynamics. You know, yeah. they have the 48 volt mild hybrid system in it. So it's very, you know, whether you get the V6 or the V8, it's very quiet. The cabin is so quiet. Um, it, they've they've really tailored it, I think, a lot also to the the experience within the rear seats as well, because now they have the optional uh, rear passenger airbag, um, the executive trims, of course, you know, uh, the top of the line focuses a lot on, you know, people who buy them to be driven around in them, you know, but of course, even if you buy it to be driven around in, you will have plenty of fun also in the driver's seat. And I guess from what Mercedes tells us that there's a lot of people that that's why they buy them. Yeah, well, clearly this car is driven, uh, is chauffeur driven in many countries, especially in the Far East. And I noticed the back seat on the top model, you can get a substantial center console, just like the front with a big screen. So you're really about the only thing you're missing back there is the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah, plus there's even okay. more stuff in the Maybach, in the Maybach uh, version of it as well, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at a later date. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, where Maybach used to be an uh, its own entity, that now it's just a trim level, but they've still maintained it's incredible that they can actually add that much more to an S-Class to make the Maybach something unique. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's getting to, I have mixed feelings about the Maybach because I've, I've driven, I've driven it, uh, not the S-Class, but the GLS. And um, I mean, it's, it's a step up from the, you know, top of the lines, you know, the right. AMGs, but how much of a step up? I mean, it's sort of, yes, it is a bit more luxurious, um, but maybe, maybe not much so from the driver's seat. Yeah, I think that's fair. Speaking of uh, driving and um, what is important to people today, and that is being able to carry uh, family or friends and all their gear, we're going to turn things over now to Brian, who's going to take the lead on the 2022 Porsche Cayenne Turbo GT. Just yeah, another so, trim level, or is there something more here to this particular Cayenne, Brian? Uh, way more than any Cayenne or any SUV before it. Uh, so Porsche currently has two SUVs in the lineup, the compact Macan and the midsize Cayenne, uh, which was, of course, their first SUV. Uh, Porsche being Porsche, uh, just having an SUV is never enough. They've been ratcheting up the performance of the Cayenne ever since it came out in 03. Leading to this, the 2022 Turbo GT, uh, the current SUV record holder on the Nürburgring. And yes, there is such a thing. Uh, so if you're familiar with the Cayenne, you know it's very 911 looking in the front, rounded SUV shape uh, going back from there. It's a regular version as well as a coupe version as the European brands like to do. Uh, the Turbo GT does not have coupe in the name, but it is available exclusively in the coupe body style, which means there's more slope to the rear hatch, giving it a more hatchback vibe. In fact, the whole 
vehicle looks more like a giant jacked up hot hatch than uh, really a traditional SUV. Uh, so add to that uh, carbon fiber roof, uh, big rear wing with side panels, lighter wheels, titanium exhaust to shave weight, and you have the basic look of the turbo GT. So when you hear GT on like the 911 or 718, it refers to coming from the GT uh, race shop there at Porsche with the track ready chassis and all that. Not necessarily the case here. It's certainly tuned by the same people, but it's not as unique as things are over on the car side. Uh, still easily the highest performance Cayenne ever. Started with the Cayenne Turbo, cranked the uh, four liter twin turbo v8 up to 631 horsepower uh three second zero to 60 lowered it by an inch every chassis system gets retuned uh including the four wheel steering which it also has and the suspension gets a huge overhaul they have so much camber dialed into the front tires you can see it looking at, at the vehicle it looks like some crazy tuner car the way the uh, <laughs> uh front tires are tilted in uh and it just looks so awesome and it drives like no other suv it's so different from any other cayenne i almost wish they would have put a different body on it and called it something entirely different but uh, uh driving you know i have to agree with you there because you're talking about a hundred and eighty thousand dollars almost not quite but almost three times the base cayenne and you're you're thinking it it looks different but it doesn't look that different but i guess the proof is in the pudding it drives like no other cayenne right that, yeah when you start driving it you know we were in the canyons out in southern california and it takes a while for your mind to really wrap around pushing an SUV this hard. It really is a physics manipulating insane machine. Mm. The turn in is just immediate. There's no roll, there's no understeer. It just grips and goes through corners like you just can't believe. And you guys have been out there. If you get deep enough in the canyons, yep. there's often other cars out there, uh, high performance stuff, having fun. Uh, nothing can hang with this Cayenne. Sport bike guys, exotics, nothing. This, this thing is insane. You know, this, this particular vehicle brings up to kind of what's going on in the industry. And, Jessica, please jump in at any time. I didn't mean to, to not go to you next. But we, we're hearing about all these insanely low uh, zero to 60 numbers from some of the new uh, electric uh, vehicles. And yet uh, it's getting to the, you really have to understand that there's more to performance and more to owning a performance car than just speed alone. It's, it's the whole package. Any uh, any comment on the uh, on the package, Jessica? I mean, I, I, I can't wait for us to get it in so I can I can take yeah. a test drive in it. But uh, I think really somebody, cool wheels. I will say. I think somebody mentioned that it's Porsche was very clear that it is the fastest Cayenne. It's not the most powerful Cayenne, um, which I believe that goes to the E hybrid, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Ryan. Yeah, E hybrid's like six seventy. Right. You know, so, you know, it's not the most powerful, but with the e-hybrid, of course, you have the battery pack, it's heavier. Um, so they're just tuning that engine. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, it, it, I, like I said, I'm just really excited to drive it just uh, to, to see what it's all about. Any final comment, Brian? 
Um, the only downside is you mentioned the $190,000 uh, price tag, um, but they're not limited in any way. They'll make as many as uh, people want. I'll take two. <laughs> yeah, on my salary. I don't think so. Uh, let's actually come back down to earth. Not not all the way back. Uh, we're still talking about something uh, you know more expensive than most people will generally uh, buy in their lifetime for their garage. But we're getting there. The Cadillac CT5, midsize luxury sedan. Uh, I frankly was quite enamored with it, both its very polished looks inside and out. But Brian, I think you, again, have probably had more experience uh, with not only the CT5, but its predecessors. So uh, why don't you chime in here? What do you think about Cadillac's latest midsize attempt, uh, luxury sports sedan? Yeah, I'm maybe not as enamored with it as you were. Uh, you mentioned the CT5 did replace the CTS, and I think mm -hmm. it's almost a step backward. Um, the, the two liter turbo, which we had in our uh, car, puts out uh, less power. Um, and I don't know, it just seems like it's stuck in the middle. If you're an old school Cadillac buyer, there's not enough luxury comfort there for you. If you're the younger buyer that they're really going after, it doesn't have the feel of the European cars. Um, it is super tech heavy. Uh, all the tech works good. It's got the super cruise and if you're into the non-driving driving, uh, and it actually handles pretty decent. They got rid of the Q touch panel nonsense. Um, oh, horrible. Yeah, but it's it's a lot of car for the money compared to the segment. Uh, but I think that's really the best thing it has going for it. I agree with you that it's a lot of compromise, but if I had to live with it every day, and I've been a fan of uh, – of what Cadillac's been doing, I felt like it was a more livable package, uh, and and it is a bargain. But you know, I I will say in agreement with you, I'm not sure that's exactly what they were after here. Yeah, I'm not really even sure what they're doing as a brand because they don't seem to be pushing SUVs like everyone else. They still have some sedans, I'm but. I'm not sure what they're doing. I know what they're either. doing. They're putting all their attention on uh, the Lyric and the upcoming electric well, vehicles, which is unfortunate, I think. Probably ultimately a good call, though. Yeah. Any uh, comments, Jessica? I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I agree with Brian. Like, it's it's hard to pinpoint where exactly the brand is going, but um, I hope it sticks around. I think just because... Cadillac recently, specifically a lot with their sedans, I th there's just no, um, like, people just don't know what they're selling anymore. Like, people could not name a Cadillac sedan like they could 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. They, they don't know. They, even, I mean, you do see uh, their SUVs on, on the road. Those seem to be pretty popular. Um, but like I said, I, I mean, it's really once in a blue moon that I see a, a modern Cadillac sedan on the road. Um, so I, there's just, people just don't really know. And I, so I hope that maybe this sticks a little bit, um, what they're doing right now. Um, I think it's certainly got a cool look to it. And we, if you, if you've seen the Escalade, uh, w which seems to be everywhere now, the new ones, uh, it, it's almost that front end is like, 
exactly the same as the, the CT5 and the CT4. So um, maybe that'll have a little bit more brand recognition um, for the city. I, I am happy that they have maintained at least, uh, you know, some sedans in their lineup and they haven't ditched them all like certainly does, does seems to be the trend but I have to wonder that if the CT5 and the four are not successes if these will also see an end to uh, uh, Cadillac four doors and they'll go the SUV route like everybody else which I think is unfortunate and um, kind of doesn't prepare you for what happens if the market switches but they are unquestionably they're going to be uh, Cadillac is going to be General Motors' lead division on electrics. And I've gotten more questions about the upcoming Lyric uh, SUV EV than I think of any Cadillac they've done in the last 20 years. Most people are that are looking at a, an all-electric vehicle think that appearance-wise, it's going to be one of the most dynamic ones out there. So we'll see. They certainly seem to be putting their emphasis in that direction. Definitely. By Black to our lightning round, speaking of uh, EVs, Elon Musk has been in the headline. It seems like he's in the headline every week. But he did recently confirm that Tesla will be opening their supercharger network to other EV brands later this year. Uh, what does that mean for non-Tesla owners who are looking to go all electric? When they do it, they're going to have to make some accommodation for the fact that the Teslas use a different um, plug than other electric vehicles. But what do you two think uh, this is good? Do you think it's going to have a big impact on the charging infrastructure or just uh, more money uh, for Tesla when they could certainly need it? I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a good thing. I don't think it's necessarily such a good thing for Tesla owners, but I think it's a good thing for EV owners in general. Um, mostly because I, automakers now, I mean, the supercharger network has to be arguably the most valuable part of Tesla. I mean, that's huge. They've got 25,000 chargers worldwide and about half of them in North America. That's a right. big number. It's huge. I mean, and, you know, we've talked multiple times before about how, um, you know, hit or miss, a lot of the charging stations um, can be that, uh, you know, uh, Electrify America or, or, you know, you know, the ones in Walmart parking lots. Um, so that's knowing that there's um, that huge infrastructure available to all EVs in the future. I mean, that's huge for anybody who, you know, maybe is considering something other than a Tesla, you know, maybe they were considering a Tesla because of that network, because of the security of that network, um, knowing that they'll be able to, you know, depending upon where they live, um, you know, there's all these superchargers everywhere and they, they'll be comfortable um, tr charging up and not never having to worry, never really having that range anxiety. Um, and now being open to other EVs as, you know, more automakers, I mean, are releasing new EVs with longer ranges and, and more technology for, um, for consumers. Um, I think it's, I think it's a good thing overall. Yeah. There'll certainly be more options for charging, but other than that, I mean, to me, it's not really that big a deal. We'll see how it goes. The first time somebody rolls into the parking lot on their model S and there's two Prius plugins, um, hogging up the, uh, 
Tesla superchargers. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I don't think it'll go well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why that's why I mentioned not so good for Tesla owners who love that exclusivity, being it being exclusive to them. Um, but but you know some like I said, some Prius owners might be uh, very happy. <laughs> you know, uh, Tesla just re released their uh, results for the last quarter, and they had record sales and. Uh, they made, I think, more money than they've ever made before. But it's interesting that they're making their money on credits that they get for not using petroleum to power their cars that they can sell to other automakers who need those credits. They're not actually making money on the physical car themselves. They're still losing. And this, to me, is another way of them kind of adding to their profits and making their case that their cars are a valuable commodity. So it's in a way, it's like everybody else is going to be subsidizing Tesla's automobiles by using the Tesla supercharged network. But I think it is going to mean uh, a lot more confidence for people who want to take long trips. Uh, yeah. So um, who knows? Yeah. I mean, maybe this could spawn something similar. Um, where you know more competition um depending upon how this goes if it goes well or or if you know prices are skyrocket and um because you're gonna have to pay for it it's not going to be free what like it is no. for for most uh of those who who own teslas so yeah we'll see how it works out okay we have a viewer question i mentioned at the top of the show from dion v what do you do with your long-term vehicles after you are done with them? Well, pretty much they go back to their makers. Um, I don't know if anybody else has got another comment, but when we finish with a long-term vehicle, we have, generally speaking, between, um, depending on how long it's been with us, whether it's three months or a year, during COVID, we actually were keeping vehicles much longer than that. But they may have upwards of 25 to 30,000 miles on them, or as little as 15 or so. And they're test cars, and they are returned to the manufacturers. And there they are, they go to auction. And uh, our understanding is that most road test vehicles, whether they be long terms or short terms, uh, are sold as uh, quote unquote executive vehicles. Uh, so company owned vehicles that have a lot of miles. And I can guarantee, though, that, uh, you know, that when a long term vehicle goes back, it's been well maintained. And, and that speaks to us and other automotive media that uh, have them. Any comments from anyone else? Uh, there have been a few that have been purchased. Um, few. Some manufacturers have let us uh, buy them over the years, but not many. That's not really typical. But yeah, other than that, they come pick it up and who knows what happens from there. It's always kind of a sad day when you see the, uh, the, uh, the folks come to pick it up or they send a, a tractor trailer to pick it up and it goes off. It's like goes over the off into the sunset and you never know, never hear from it again or see, for, see or anything. You know, maybe one day we should get the VIN numbers for some of these long terms and see where they ended up. <laughs> an interesting exercise yeah maybe uh the whole business of long terms has changed over the years uh i come back when we 
Well, let's say we go back 20 years ago, uh, we often had as many as 10 or 12 long-term vehicles in our fleet that we got in to see whether our initial impressions and road tests would hold up over a longer period of time. Many manufacturers have stopped doing long-terms. As a matter of fact, I think most have. And now it's, uh, you know, maybe three, four, five, even six at tops. And most of the time, I think it's only about three or four. So it is kind of a dying test mode, but um, it is a way of finding out after you've spent, you know, three months, four months, a year, whether or not what you thought during that initial week or two weeks of the vehicle uh, is really true. And it gives us a way of uh, letting the potential buyers know what to expect long term. But uh, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's an expensive process for the manufacturers. So that's why it's going away. But thanks, Dion B., and we hope that answered your, que- answered your question. Any rant and raves from anyone this week? Um, uh, Silence. Oh, I, I, I have a rave. <laughs> All right. Um, and I, I want to just say how I think adaptive cruise control is, is amazing. I think it's the coolest uh. feature in new cars. I don't know why. Well, I, I do know why. Cause I use it on all sorts of different roads. Um, I like to use it. I have like a normal route that I take to go visit my parents and um, they live in like a touristy area. So I am, I, I know how to drive the roads and I'm usually driving with a bunch of tourists. So there's like the small <laughs> towns. I just, the small towns that I know, like the speed limits, 25 miles per hour. I just pop on adaptive cruise control I'm going through and um, people behind me, of course, get so upset because they want to go faster, but we're in the small town and I know that there's police coming up. So, right. um, so I use it on all sorts of roads and it's, and I, I like testing them out on different cars too, to see, um, you know, like how well they do on the highway with maybe a little bit more traffic. Um, and yeah, no, so I, I, I'm raving about adaptive cruise control. Uh, Brian, what do you like it or not? Um, yeah, as a general rule, I would say yes. If it works properly, uh, I would I limit the use uh, the use of them to highways. I don't use them much in the back roads in those scenarios, but on the highway, uh, they can be nice provided the uh, depending on how the distance is set. Um, and some, I like the ones that give you a warning, like when they start slowing you down, like some don't, and then people will cut in front of you and you, you know, you may not realize you're going 10 miles an hour slower than what you want to be going. Um, but yeah, all in all, I mean, I'll take them or leave them. Just regular cruise control is great. I'm less than enamored with the systems that combine uh, the automatic uh, and active cruise control with lane keep assist and things like that because uh, that you know you're expecting the vehicle to ma- to maintain speed and to slow down if there's traffic out of you or you're too close but when it starts tugging at the wheel it can be a little alarming especially when uh, the roads are not well maintained and the lane markings they're looking for come and go oh yeah so i think I- the basic premise is fine I can agree. I can absolutely agree with that because most of them do that now. 
Um, yeah. And it's and also if you feel like that the car and and how you stay in the lane are like two different things. I don't I don't know if that's bad. Sometimes I feel like it's tugging too much. Like I'm in like right. the far right lane and it wants me. You know I want to stay closer to the to the right side rather rather than to the left side. So I totally agree with you there, John. And let's leave it there. I want to thank our two-wheeling reporter, Brian Robinson, and our online content coordinator, Jessica Ray, who also is our podcast producer today. And also thank audio engineer Jim Bigwood for making us sound as great as we possibly can be. Our podcast producer out on maternity leave, Greg Carlos, and podcast creator, Bob Mixter. And everybody out there, if you'd like to know more about Motor Week, if you're just catching our podcast, Go to our website, motorweek.org, and at the upper corner, you can pull down about the show and put in your zip code and find out what public television station is showing us in the time and day. Don't forget also to check us out over on our cable partner at Motor Trend, and frankly, our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash motorweek, where millions of you see all of the latest segments that we have produced each and every week. And to everyone out there, thanks once again for being a part of Motor Week. You've been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. Motor Week is made possible by TireRack.com and RockAuto.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at MotorWeek.org. And watch Motor Week television's longest-running automotive magazine series each week on your local PBS station.